You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Today's show is also brought to you by our Patreon supporters, including our Commodore class. That's Commodore's Kane, Kenway, Scurvy Pete, Hefe, Zuman, Blacktip, Matthew the Navigator, Bull, Vertigon, Conifalende, Rumgut, and Bootstraps Bailey. Hello. Welcome to the Pirate History Podcast. My name is Matt. Thank you for listening. Nicaragua has a remarkable history, but it can get lost in the melange of Spanish conquest that defined the New World in the 16th century. The conquest of the Aztec Empire in Mexico and the Inca Empire in South America tend to eclipse the stories that come out of Central America and the struggles that took place there. Nicaragua would be an excellent place to focus on as a microchasm to tell the story of Spanish conquest and the conquistadors. Today's episode is not about the 16th century Spanish conquistadors. More and more I want to tell those stories, and I might yet do so, but not today. The reason I bring it up at all is, well, Nicaragua was an exceptionally well-populated colony in the Spanish New World. Nothing on Havana or Lima or Mexico City, or even Panama at her height, but there were a lot of people living in Nicaragua. And to call it a colony isn't really accurate either. It was an administrative district within the Kingdom of Guatemala under the umbrella of Nueva España, which was, of course, part of the Spanish Empire. But it was so well populated because, well... Nicaragua didn't have the mineral wealth of Mexico or Peru. There weren't empires to be built on Native American gold and silver. But it was really nice in Nicaragua. It's been called the land of lakes and volcanoes, but also the land of eternal spring. It's a fertile and lush land, and it's beautiful. Even in pre-Columbian times, it was well populated. It was the farthest southern reach of Aztec influence before Columbus arrived, and the settlements there served as centers for trade with those under the Inca umbrella to the south. Nicaragua was among the first parts of the American mainland to be conquered by Spain. Before Cortes conquered Mexico and before Pizarro conquered Peru, a man named Pedro Arias de Avila colonized what would become Panama and Nicaragua. Now, he wasn't the first European commander to visit the Isthmus, nor was he the first to found settlements there, but he did found Panama, the city, and his lieutenant founded the Nicaraguan cities, Leon and Grenada. Leon and Grenada served as a testing grounds, maybe, or guinea pigs for the Spanish conquest of America. From there, the Spanish were able to fight Native Americans throughout Central and South America, and Leon, Panama, and Grenada served as 
jumping-off points for the invasions of Mexico and Peru. They were also among the earliest settlements in the New World to dramatically shift racially. The conquistadors that colonized Nicaragua didn't bring wives with them, no women at all, in fact. When the cities were founded, the men that lived there took women from the nearby Norhua villages as their brides. In a generation, the population of Nicaragua had become almost entirely what they call mestizo, that is to say the children of Native American parents and European parents. There were still Spanish migrants that came to Lyon and Grenada, and there were slaves, of course, but the Spanish citizens were almost entirely mestizo. Most of the Norhua population, the local Native American population that hadn't been incorporated into Spanish society, had been either murdered or shipped off to Mexico or Peru to work in silver and gold mines. The only indigenous strongholds left in Nicaragua were those on the Mosquito Coast, the Mosquito people that were at war with Spain and allied with England. Spain took such an interest in Nicaragua because of the two great lakes there, as well as the many waterways that dissect the country. They were searching for a waterway, a passage by water to the Pacific Ocean. There wasn't one, not one large enough to be of any consequence, but by that point the people of Leon and Grenada had children and homes and decided to stay there. But we are not here to talk about the history of Nicaragua, not the volcanoes nor the lakes, not the Native Americans or the conquistadors, not the noble mestizo people. No, we are here to talk about the pirates that burned the land of Eternal Spring to the ground. This is episode 67, A Noisome Smell. The pirates, the mostly English pirates under Edward Davis, Charles Swan, Captain Townsley, Jean Rose, and William Knight, left Lyon on the morning of 15 September, 1685. Before leaving Lyon, they took several actions. First, they engaged in a prisoner transfer. Second, they agreed to release a gentleman landowner who had agreed to send them 150 head of cattle before they set sail. Third, they sent a letter to the governor at Lyon, informing him of their intent to visit Rialejo to occupy the port until they received a ransom. And then fourth, they set fire to Lyon. Their canoes were in the river, about 20 miles to the southwest of the city. On their march there, the pirates actually met up with Captain Peter Harris and William Dampier and the 58 other pirates that had been left behind to watch those canoes, to guard their escape. While Captain Davis had occupied Leon, a company of Spanish soldiers had attacked Captain Harris and his men. They'd retaken the breastworks at the river and intended to stop the pirates from escaping. See, the Spanish were attempting to lay a trap for the pirates. The governor of Leon had tried for weeks to keep the pirates there, in his city. His people were safe in that tunnel system, underground, and armies were marching on the city from every other city, town, and village in the region. They were coming from San Salvador and San Miguel in modern-day El Salvador, but the most pressing force marching on the pirates was that of Grenada. They were already in the region, and they were preparing to fall on the pirates. However, the Spanish force at the breastworks was only 100 men strong. The entire English pirate force was almost 600 men strong. It only took a single volley before the Spanish soldiers ran away. It did take some time for the pirates to actually find their canoes. See, they'd been hidden away. 
and it took even more time for them to clear the river. The Spanish had blockaded the river. They'd lain thick chains across the river that would prevent even canoes from crossing. They could just pick up the canoes and carry them around, but with how many men and canoes there were, it was faster to cut the chains and keep their boats in the water. Time was pressing down on them. The army out of Grenada had met with that of Lyon, and the combined force was marching to meet the pirates on the savannah outside Lyon. But the pirates didn't want to march out and meet a large Spanish army on an open field. What they wanted was to row down to Realejo to terrify the occupants into submission and to have their run of the town, all of it while holding the town hostage against the Spanish army outside town. And that's, well, that's what they did. It seems like order really began to break down when they reached Realejo. There were no locals left in the town, neither Spanish nor Mestizo nor African. Everyone was gone. There were few valuables left either. They had carried most of them away. But there was, in plenty, food. Dampier describes the town and the multitude of fruits to be found here. The pirates had the opportunity, while they were in Realejo, to sleep in the fine beds of the locals. They raided their stores of food and drink, and most of them upgraded their wardrobe. There would have been a shocking number of pirates dressed as Spanish merchants in the weeks following Realejo, dressed in fine garb. They drank wine. Not the best wine, but better than the swill they usually had access to. They ate beef and guava and pineapple and pomegranate and the fruit of the prickly pear and bananas. They also had the opportunity to resupply their ships. See, Realejo was an active port. It produced lumber and the tools necessary to maintain a ship, and it also produced tar and hemp. From the hemp they manufactured sails and rope. In fact, their hempen goods were so fine that Realejo supplied Panama with all of her necessary rope and sails and even much of the clothing. Now the pirates arrived in Realejo on the 17th, and they quickly picked the town clean. There were teams of carpenters among the pirates and deckhands that were working on the ships, but most of the men got a few days off. In groups of 20 or 30, the pirates started exploring the outlying farms. They found a few caches of precious metal, but not many. Mostly, they were raiding sugar plantations. Now, they didn't have any horses or mules or carts. The locals had all run off with those. So the pirates each laid claim to sacks of sugar, usually one at a time. It wasn't as good as chests of gold and rubies or Aztec jewelry, but a bag of sugar would fetch a decent price, well, anywhere, at any port in the world. Some of the men were also thoughtful enough to steal a few of the more complex and expensive parts in the manufacture of sugar and molasses. They seemed like fantastic prizes, but as it turned out, here in the Pacific, they weren't the best. In the West Indies, up in the Caribbean, they could have sold any of these parts of sugar manufacturing to the highest bidder. In Port Royal or Tortuga or virtually anywhere that manufactured sugar, people wanted them. However, the only people around here in this region of the Pacific that really grew sugarcane were currently on the run from these very pirates. Still, the pirates made out all right, but there was a sense of disorder growing among the pirates in Realejo. They didn't have an enemy to fight. They didn't have the regular daily duties of sailing, so they turned to drinking and gambling and fighting. 
Now those head of cattle that had been promised by the gentleman in Lyon had actually arrived. A team of drivers brought them into town. And that shows to me... I mean, would you send 120 head of cattle to a group of pirates that burned and murdered and robbed everything around them that had held you captive? I'm not certain that I would. However, apparently that cattle rancher was a man of his word, and he sent the cattle. There may have been influence from the governor in Lyon to send the cattle. Perhaps if they had the meat they intended to have, they would sail on without causing too much trouble. The men who brought the cattle into town also had a message for the pirates. The Spanish called for the pirates to meet them in open battle. It was a call to an honorable fight. It was in the footsteps of more than 2,000 years of Western tradition. It was a tradition of all of the forebears of these English pirates, from the ancient Greeks and the Romans down through all of their pagan and Christian ancestors, the Celts and the Teutons and the ancient Britons and the Anglo-Saxons. This call to arms was a challenge to which any Englishman of noble spirit and honorable heart would never fail to rise. It was the tradition of Alfred the Great and Edward Longshanks, of Richard the Lionheart and William the Conqueror. William Dampier writes of their response to this challenge handed down by the Spanish, quote, Some of our destructive crew set fire to the houses. I know not by whose order, but we marched away and left them burning. We embarked into our canoes and returned aboard our ships. End quote. Yeah, they weren't going to fight the Spanish. They had holds full of good food with live cattle and strong drink and enough cargo to not exactly make them rich, but it was a payday. The pirates had spent a month on the mainland in Nicaragua. Now, they hadn't become rich men, but they had stolen enough supplies to keep them sailing for several months more, and enough cargo to at least make the voyage worth it. The destruction left in their wake was not as extensive as the destruction left by Henry Morgan in Panama in 1671, but it was by no means small. They had burned the capital of this administrative district in Lyon and the port that served all of the cities inland. The damage was not insubstantial. But after they left the mainland back to their ships, the English pirates had decisions to make. Now, they hadn't left the harbor in Realejo yet, but Realejo was the farthest northern extent of Pacific shipping lanes in the sphere of influence around Panama. The ships that serviced Lima and Guayaquil and Panama never went any further than Realejo. There was a vast expanse of what includes modern-day El Salvador and Guatemala and Mexico that was, well, it wasn't uninhabited, but it didn't have any major ports on the Pacific coast or any shipping off which the pirates could feed. Most pirates, really most sailors, would choose to sail back to the southeast, towards Panama and Darien and Peru. They were better hunting grounds for pirates, and Darien was their way home. If they wanted to return to the Caribbean, the best way to get there was to cross the Isthmus through the lands of the Kuna. Now, Captain Edward Davis of Bachelor's Delight, along with William Knight, Peter Harris, and probably Jean Rose, and then Lionel Wafer, Basil Ringrose, really the majority of the English pirates there in the Pacific chose to do the sensible thing and head for Panama. However, Captain Charles Swan of the Signet 
was not a sensible English pirate. He was, well, he was sensible, arguably, and he was English, but he wasn't a pirate. Not really. He had been at Panama under Morgan and served as a privateer for several years, but since then he'd been a legitimate merchant, mostly honest in his dealings. This excursion into the Pacific had seen he and his men forced into doing some things that some of them might rather have avoided. Fighting and robbing and killing and burning, well, that's not what most of them were after. Now, when it became clear that trading was going to be impossible, much of the crew of Signet insisted they engage in a little bit of piracy. But Charles Swan and most of his officers were family men. They did need to earn a living, so they agreed to turn pirate rather than wind up killed or marooned or destitute in the Pacific. But that wouldn't do them much good if they wound up in a Spanish prison cell, or at the bottom of the ocean, or at the end of a rope. Also, remember, Signet didn't belong to Captain Swan. He'd taken out loans and taken money from investors to finance this voyage. It might not have turned out as he had planned, but he still needed to pay those people back and to return the ship to her owners. Swan realized that if he continued on with Captain Davis, there was a very good chance that he and his men might not ever return home to their families. I'm Jane Perlez, longtime foreign correspondent and former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. I've been a foreign correspondent in lots of places, Somalia, Indonesia, Pakistan, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I mean, China is not dropping anti-democratic paratroopers into Montana. But of course, we did see things like the weather balloon slash spy balloon riveting the whole country for a week. This is Face Off an eight-part series in which we'll take you behind the scenes to key moments in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. We'll speak with a diplomat, a spy, a tech reporter, a U.S. admiral, even Yo-Yo Ma. Plus, my pal and noted China historian Rana Mitter joins the conversation. We'll look at what's driving the two nations apart and explore whether anything can help bring them back together. Face-off launches April 9th. Hello all, Eric Rivenus with the Most Notorious Podcast here. Each week I interview an author or historian about a historical true crime, tragedy, or disaster. Subject matter ranges from gunslingers to Gilded Age murder to gangsters to fires to pirates to wild prison breaks. My guests bring their incredible knowledge directly to you. Please subscribe to Most Notorious on your favorite podcast app. Cheers and have a safe tomorrow. And even if Davis and his group did decide to return to the Caribbean, well, they were likely, at least, to return overland through Darien. That was out of the question for Captain Swan and the Signet. Even if they did go by sea, it would mean, if they went southeast with Captain Davis, that they would have to round Cape Horn again. And that would put him back in the position of a dangerous bit of sailing, a certainty that he wouldn't be able to trade, and the entire time the winds would not be in his favor. See, Swan still had some of those original goods that he had brought from London in the holds of Signet, and they'd actually taken on a bit of other 
cargo through less than legal means, but cargo that would fetch a good price if he could find a buyer. So Charles Swan and the Signet elected not to follow Captain Davis and instead to go the opposite direction, northwest, for Mexico. Dampier writes of this, quote, I had till this time been with Captain Davis, but now left him and went aboard of Captain Swan. It was not from any dislike of my old captain, but to get some knowledge of the northern parts of this continent of Mexico, and I knew that Captain Swan determined to coast it as far north as he thought convenient, and then pass over for the East Indies, which was very agreeable to my inclination. End quote. Dampier would later say in some of his letters that this inclination was, quote, more to indulge my curiosity than to get wealth, end quote, and he believed, quote, no proposal for seeing any part of the world which I had never seen before could possibly come amiss. End quote. It wasn't a desire for further piracy. It was his drive to see new lands. It was his almost obsessive need to document those lands and the sea and the foods and the peoples of places that were still little known to the English. That was what drove him. It was curiosity. It certainly wasn't a desire to return home. If he had gone with Captain Davis, they were more likely to make it to England faster than he would. But if he wasn't trying to return home, then he wasn't eager to see his wife, Judith. He hadn't seen her in six years now. I'm legitimately baffled by this. I wonder if there was a feeling that he'd been gone too long already. He didn't know his wife. They'd only been married shortly before he left England. Then there is, of course, the possibility that he wasn't interested in a wife in the first place. But if that's not the case, and many historians discount it, well, he may have been seeking something worthwhile to bring home. He had a bit of treasure in his sea chest, but it was hardly enough gold and silver to set him up for life. It wasn't his fortune, but what he did have were notes. He had illustrations, maps, and charts of lands that England didn't know. With those, and with the new maps and new notes that he would make in the East Indies, he would have a treasure that might be worth more than silver and gold. It would certainly make him famous, it might make him rich, and it would make his life meaningful. Captain Townsley chose to accompany Swan and Dampier and the Signet, as did Ambrose Crowley, if you recall him. The two little fleets parted, there at Realejo. The larger had four ships and the smaller had two. Bachelor's Delight saluted Swan and Dampier and Townsley and his fellows with a fifteen-gun salute. Signet returned the gesture with eleven guns. See, they were still friends, they were still countrymen and comrades, but... They were no longer partners. Dampier and Swan and the Signet decided to stay there at Rialejo in port for a few more days. They had a need to gather a few additional supplies. See, the other group would be seeing ports that they could raid, shipping that they could feed off of. But the Signet was not. There was a long stretch before they would reach any settlements again, and even then there was uncertainty that they would be able to resupply before crossing the Pacific Ocean, the vastness of the Pacific Ocean, to get to the East Indies. They probably could, but just in case they wanted to gather as much water and as much wood and as much sailcloth and pitch and rope as possible before departing. 
Let us, for a moment, examine one of the most necessary elements in the operation of a vessel during the age of sail, pitch. Pitch, which is also called tar, is a thick, heavy, viscous liquid. And it's dark, really black, hence the term dark as pitch or pitch black. When a ship was undergoing careening, the typical procedure was to beach the ship or put her in dry dock, then scrape off any barnacles on the hull. Carpenters would then examine the hull for any damage or rot that might weaken the hull and repair it. They would add or replace timber where needed. When the hull was clean and strong, or when a ship was new built, the crew would set about to coat the entire hull with pitch. This gave ships in the age of sail their dark appearance. The pitch or tar was liquid, but it moved very slowly. A decent coat of pitch could last for weeks or even months. It would harden and protect the wood of any sailing vessel. It's not dissimilar to asphalt. They share a lot of properties, and naturally occurring tar even turns into asphalt after a fashion. Much like honey, tar doesn't let in a lot of oxygen or even water. More importantly, though, it's microbicidal, which means bacteria and viruses can't penetrate it. Now, it was used elsewhere on board a sailing vessel, but it was integral in the maintenance of a ship's hull. Most of the pitch used during the age of sail was a byproduct of the production of charcoal. In northern Europe, they were among the first to perfect its production, using pine wood. The wood was cut into small slices, almost the width of a finger. Then it was placed into a custom-built kin and packed in tight with moss. The moss would keep any excess oxygen from entering the kiln and keep the wood from catching fire. Then a fire was lit, and that would actually heat the wood until the resin was distilled from the wood. It's called dry distilling, and it would come out thick and black, and then it would be collected in a reservoir in the back of the kiln. Now what was left in there was charcoal from the wood, but the pitch, well, it had a variety of uses. There were medical applications for pitch. It was used in roofing and even occasionally as an ingredient in food. Mostly, though, it was used for vessels. Those northern Europeans were among the first to mass-produce pitch, and they used it on their sailing ships. The Vikings, they used pitch. They kept their longboats safe and clean and fast with it. It was a major factor in their superiority at sea. Now, when the Norse invaded and conquered Britain, they brought pitch with them. It played a not insignificant role in Britain's early sea superiority. Still, Sweden and Finland and Denmark and Norway, well, they produced the best pitch in the world for the entirety of the Middle Ages and even up into the Renaissance. Here in 1685, Sweden controlled an empire that had parts of all four countries in it, and they controlled the trade in pitch. That's a bigger deal than it sounds like. In the age of sail, sea power was what won and lost wars, what gained you empires and could cripple dynasties. That sea power relied on ships, and ships relied on pitch. However, the Swedish system for dry distilling pine into pitch isn't the only way to get tar. Many other countries had other, usually less efficient, means of pitch production. But every decent-sized port city in the world had someone producing tar, usually several someones. That pitch that they were producing in northern Europe was used primarily to create navies. However, the best pitch, the most economical pitch as well, 
was that which wasn't produced. It was that pitch that occurred naturally. Natural tar comes in the form of tar pits. These are naturally occurring pools of heavy crude oil that has seeped from its underground reservoir to the surface. They're famous for the dinosaur remains and woolly mammoth skeletons that have been found almost perfectly preserved, trapped in the tar. Now those tar pits usually pop up in regions with heavy tectonic activity. Earthquakes and the like will often result in petroleum seepage, which creates tar pits. For example, the southwest coast of Nicaragua is an area where two tectonic plates meet. The continental drift there creates friction, and that results in volcanoes and earthquakes and all manner of underground materials bubbling to the surface. Realejo, which was the only port of consequence for leagues around, was well supplied for the maintenance of ships. They had hemp, which they wove into useful materials. They had lumber yards near the mountains, and they had large swaths of naturally occurring tar pits. William Dampier writes of Realejo, quote, It is a pretty large town with three churches and a hospital that has a fine garden belonging to it. Besides many large fair houses, they all stand at a good distance from one another, with yards about them. This is a very sickly place, and I believe has need enough for a hospital, for it is seated so nigh the creeks and swamps that it is never free from a noisome smell. End quote. Those houses were spaced decently far away from one another because, well, if an earthquake hit and a building fell over or caught fire, it would be less likely to affect the other buildings around it if it was surrounded by a yard. The geological phenomena that creates petroleum seepage and natural tar pits has all manner of other side effects. Most notably, there is a natural seepage of methane gas to the surface which results in a noisome smell. And a quick note here, noisome is not a cognate or synonym of noisy. Now, I've usually only heard it in regard to a noisome racket, so I assumed it was, but its root is actually from Middle English, and before that French, and down from Latin. It's actually related to the English word annoy. A noisome smell is an annoying smell. Methane gas is an annoying smell. And that methane gas tends to create swamps. The bog of eternal stench from the movie Labyrinth, that was a noisome methane bog. Bogs of eternal stench are problematic for a lot of reasons. Probably the most noisome element in any swamp would be the mosquitoes. And there were a lot of mosquitoes in that region of Nicaragua. There is a reason that the Mosquito Coast of Nicaragua is called the Mosquito Coast. The Mosquito people are not an indigenous people. The native Nicaraguans that inhabited that particular coastline were already wiped out by the time the Mosquito settled there. The Mosquito... Well, they forged an alliance with the English, with the pirates, and with the British Empire. They were, and still are, a multi-ethnic mix of indigenous peoples of many different backgrounds and many different languages, as well as escaped slaves who set up colonies there. There was the Spanish influence on their people and British pirates. Remember the Providence Company that attempted to settle Old Providence Island? failed and fled to the Mosquito Coast? Remember the buccaneers that Mings, Modiford, Mansvelt, and Morgan all sent to Providence to recapture it? Well, they all fled to the Mosquito Coast. The word mosquito 
actually comes from the Latin word for fly, and it comes down to us from the Spanish. The Spanish conquistadors that settled Nicaragua and had to put up with those noisome mosquitoes, the flies, biting them, well, they named that multi-ethnic blend of Indians, Africans, and pirates that settled to their north after the insect. Mosquitoes, and the, I mean the bugs here, well, they're just awful. They bite, they suck your blood, and the bites itch. It's just terrible. I'm not looking forward to them this summer. It was a crude name to give to a group of people that would occasionally come out from the woods, kill a few hundred of your soldiers, and then disappear back into their hideouts on the Mosquito Coast. They were comparing them to an annoying, biting insect. But to them, to the Spanish... Mosquitoes were more than just annoying, biting, itchy creatures. There is a very practical reason that in a single generation, the majority of the population of Leon, Grenada, and Rialejo was mestizo. Over the centuries, the indigenous people of Nicaragua developed immunity to the many dangerous diseases that were carried by the mosquitoes. The European settlers of the region, the Spanish conquistadors, did not have those immunities. However, their children, with Norhua women, often were immune to the diseases carried by the mosquitoes. But the pirates that occupied Leon and Realejo for about a month, well, they were not immune. It's unfortunate that William Dampier wasn't a trained physician. He was trained as a ship's doctor. He could mend wounds and make poultices, but he was a naturalist, not a doctor. So he doesn't go into any terrible detail about the disease that struck the crews of Signet and Captain Townley's vessel. However, it was almost certainly yellow fever. Yellow fever? Well, in the majority of cases, yellow fever is rough. There's nausea and vomiting, headache, fatigue, you feel pain everywhere. It lasts a few days, and then the recipient is left weak but healthy. Most of the Englishmen in the port at Realejo came down with symptoms and then recovered after those few days. In fact, everyone seemed to recover. That's how yellow fever works. Most cases are genuine recoveries, but about 15% of the cases of yellow fever get much worse. You might want to fast forward a bit here if you're faint of heart or have an overactive imagination. When the fever returns, it's because the infection has spread to the intestines and then onto the kidneys. The infected person begins to turn yellow, jaundiced from the kidney infection. And then they begin bleeding. Bleeding in the mouth. Oh, and you have the hiccups, by the way, so try not to picture that. There's bleeding from the eyes and bleeding of the intestinal tract. There's blood in your urine. There's blood in your stool. And there's blood and shed intestinal lining in your vomit, and you will be vomiting a lot. The Spanish call yellow fever vomito negro, black vomit. The mortality rate of yellow fever with proper treatment is relatively low. The spread of the infection is unlikely with proper treatment, but the pirates didn't have proper treatment. The mortality rate, once the infection spreads, even with today's medicine, is about 50%. And I imagine that it grew higher and higher among the pirates. Years later, William Dampier would bump into some of the men that were on board Bachelor's Delight, some of his old shipmates. 
they didn't escape the infection either. Davis himself got infected and nearly died just a few days after leaving Rialejo. Maybe a fifth of the men on board his crews did die. You see, they had already put out to sea. They were busy sailing. Remember the storms and the tornadoes that hit the pirates before arriving at Rialejo? Well, they hit Bachelor's Delight at sea while about a third of the men were busy vomiting and turning yellow and dying. However, the sickness eventually passed for Bachelor's Delight. Most of the pirates made it out alive, if a bit worse for the wear. The same happened for the Signet. Both of the crews picked themselves up, buried their dead, and set sail once again. Signet headed northwest, Bachelor's Delight southeast. But there was another crew of pirates in the Pacific. There were the French. While all of this drama at Lyon and Rialejo, from their invasion, occupation, their burning of the Nicaraguan coast, and the sickness had been going on, well, the French had been having their own adventures. We talked about most of those last time. There was an attack on a cattle ranch. There was an attack on the estate of a landed gentleman and a lady. But then they had a few other adventures. There was a crocodile attack. A company of pirates that was on shore was ambushed by a nest of venomous vipers that turned out to be extremely deadly. But they had, at the very least, avoided yellow fever. And then on November 1st, 1685, the Santa Rosa under Francois Groenet, along with Pierre Le Picard, Mathurin de Martey, Jean Lescouillet, and Ravenot de Luzon, well, they arrived just off the coast of Nicaragua, outside Realejo. Now, by November, when the French arrived, the English pirates were all long gone. However, the French were struck by the storms outside Realejo. But once they passed, the French pirates sailed boldly into port and disembarked. There was actually a contingent of privateers that had landed a few miles down the coast that were marching overland to get to Realejo. The French intended to capture the town in a pincer move, but it turned out to be totally unnecessary. The people of Realejo just welcomed the pirates in. They were tired. They were bloodied. They had no will to fight. They had nothing left to steal anyway. They were low on food and medicine and supplies. So instead of ransacking the town and burning it and murdering the people, the French just traded with them. They learned about everything that had transpired when the English were there. Luzon writes of their discussions with the locals and then says of Rialejo, quote, Both its churches and houses, though then half burnt, appeared to us to have been beautiful enough. End quote. The French saw the devastation wrought by the English buccaneers and what was left in the pirates' wake, the suffering, the toil. One wonders if they had a moment of clarity, seeing what was left behind, not the ruins that they left behind, but what happened when people tried to pick up after a visit from the pirates. There was also a growing sentiment among the French on this voyage to the Pacific. At Pueblo Nuevo, they had seen the destruction caused by their English comrades. They had seen churches defiled and destroyed. Luzon lamented the Spanish hatred of the French buccaneers. The Spanish saw them all as one single body of miscreants. The French, though, shared at the least a religious solidarity with the Spanish. Back in Europe, they were enemies, had been for decades, but here in the New World, 
maybe they actually had more in common with the Spanish than with these English heathens. Still, at the moment, Spain and France were at war. And these were privateers. They had a commission to attack Spanish holdings. It was their job. They had to do so. So the privateers left Realejo and marched on Leon. Outside of Realejo, they found the half-burned breastworks, the place where the pirates disembarked to attack Leon. The French captured a few Spanish lookouts there and questioned them. There were still several thousand troops at Leon, Spanish troops, as it turned out. The local militia, the garrisons from Grenada, San Miguel, San Salvador, they were all there. It was an intimidating force that the French, frankly, didn't really want to face. It was large enough to swallow the privateers without much trouble at all. However, the French learned through this interrogation of the troops that the Spanish already knew that they were there. In Lyon, they already had word of them, and there were plans being laid to keep the French from escaping. So the French took the captain of these soldiers captive, along with a few other of the officers, and then sent the rest of the soldiers away, back to Lyon, with a message. The French agreed to return to their ships. They would not attack Lyon, and they would not further bother Realejo. But they needed safe passage. If they were given it and allowed to return to their vessels, they would release the captain. After they sent the messengers off, the pirates began marching back towards Realejo, but they were intercepted by a force of Spanish horsemen. The French fired on the cavalry, and the horse fell back, but then they surrounded the privateers. They cut off their escape. The French privateers tightened their lines. They kept their guns primed and were prepared to fight off a Spanish charge, but the horsemen stayed put. All throughout that day and into the night, the horsemen didn't move. The French, though, they were awaiting attack at any moment. They didn't sleep. But when the sun rose, there was a movement from the Spanish lines. However, rather than a charge, only a small unit, a few horses, rode forth, and they carried a flag of truce. Luzon writes, quote, On the 24th came a Spanish officer who brought a letter from the vicar general of the province by order of the general of Costa Rica, who sent us a word there was a peace made between the crowns of France and Spain for 20 years, that they were joined together to make war upon the infidels. End quote. Back in Europe, a few weeks earlier, on August 15th, while the English pirates were busy here in Nicaragua, the War of the Reunions between Spain and France officially ended. France and Spain had been at war off and on for almost a century now, but they had signed the Truce of Ratisbon. That guaranteed 20 years of peace and actually allied, after a fashion, France and Spain against the infidels. Now, the infidels in question were the Islamic forces of the Ottoman Empire, but there were no Ottomans in the Pacific. To the eyes of the Spanish, here in the New World, and the French Catholics present here on Spanish soil, the only infidels were two parties of English Protestants, pirates with a particular taste for burning Catholic churches. Next time, we'll follow the French under Groenet and the English under Davis as they maneuver for position and fight for control and eventually leave the Pacific. It will be the final episode about this second buccaneer incursion into the Pacific. We will eventually return to the story of William Dampier, Charles Swan, and the Signet, but not for a while. 
it's time to move on, to leave the age of the buccaneers behind and move on to what they call the Red Sea Men, or the Pirates of the Round. First, though, we have some catching up to do back in Europe. I'd like to thank everybody for listening. I'd also like to thank everybody who has helped to support the show. All of you who have become a patron on Patreon, or anybody who has given us a shout-out on Reddit or in real life, or given us a review on iTunes or wherever it is you listen to the show. Without all of your help, I couldn't do this. Thank you. Our theme music was, as always, The Old Captain by the fantastic band Brillig. If you haven't checked them out yet, I certainly suggest you do so. You can find them at brillig.com.au. That's B-R-I-L-L-I-G.com.au. After you're done over there, why not check out our website at piratehistorypodcast.com, or you can get in touch with us on Twitter, SoundCloud, or YouTube. As always, most importantly, thank you for listening. Tonight